Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Okay, so today we have someone very interesting and possibly our first uh, Walloon Flemish expert on the show as well. And uh, he was kindly introduced to me by Maddie Sharma, who we interviewed last week. So as with all good things, you talk to one great person and it leads you to someone else. Um, so first of all, uh, who am I talking to today? My name is Rudy Arnaut. Uh-huh. And um, what do you do? Like, if you, what was your, if you had to do an elevator pitch, what would your pitch be? Well, my pitch would start by saying that I'm both an economist and a philosopher, which I like. Okay. A combination, and so the fact that I'm both makes that I have a quite open view to things. Um, professionally, now speaking, uh, I'm a writer because I write a lot of books and papers. I'm a professor at the University uh, of Ghent in Belgium and Nancy in France, and I'm senior economist at the European Commission, where I'm dealing, in fact, with uh, SME policy, industrial policy, financing, space, and such exciting matters like that. Awesome, and. Look, I, I think philosophy combined with economics is a good thing because obviously economics is called the dismal science. And uh, I did a master's in development economics and we had people who'd worked at the World Bank and they said, I need numbers. I need numbers. If there's no statistics, I can't believe it. But the trouble was, was, you know, with all these things, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. And a lot of the data they're working from wasn't good. So I think if you have the philosophical aspect, then hopefully you're also questioning the quality of the data that you base your theories on. Um, so would that be a fair way to, to look at things? Yeah, I fully agree with you. Now, I always quote John Stuart Mill, who said, a good economist is more than an economist. And that's something I really believe in. You know, if you only look to figures and you cannot read between the lines intellectus, then there's nothing you can do with them because figures show what they like to show and you can, do, you can prove everything with figures. So if you don't understand them, if you don't really know what's behind, and, and I would say behind, really behind, what is the objective of figures? Hey, for instance, if you say economic growth went up by 1%, okay, so what? What does it mean? What exactly <laughs> is it what we want? You know, and, and then you can start by having some philosophical discussions to see exactly what do we have to do? What is the policy we have to run? So, I mean, like, for example, so uh, I think it's Brunei that have the, 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 the gross happiness quotient. Um, is, is was that a good thing to do is that is that practical uh i mean a lot of people have critiqued gdp to suggest that it's an inaccurate measure i mean we recently re reviewed uh, reimagining uh capitalism which very much talks about how at the moment companies are drawn for shareholder value but shareholder value isn't necessarily good for society or our planet so so do we need to kind of evaluate how we assess what is good in terms of uh, gdp and economics yeah, I think but this is, of course, uh, we, we go directly to the, the really fund of the problem. The problem is what is economics and what is it for? Huh? If you go back to economics, oikos nomos, means we try to, 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 have, to use our resources in order to have goods and services that we need for the quality of our life. So economy, it's a mean, it's not an objective. Today, economy become a mean. Huh? Can you imagine what would happen with the economy if we would only buy what we need? economy would collapse. So it doesn't make sense. And that things we should rethink again. Um, of course, there's no such a thing as the perfect indicator of economy of, of happiness. But there are some major things, for instance. Um, if you look to, to a company, you spoke about, Simon, you speak about the, 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 the shareholder. 
But one of the major assets of a company is the staff, it's human resources. If I look as an economist, human resources, it's part of the cost of the company. It's even not in the assets, it's even not in the balance sheet. So yes, why not rethink things? And it's not the one or the other, it's not economy, GDP, and or happiness. We should combine both. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good assessment. Uh, we recently interviewed uh, Steve Van Bellicum, who's a, a, a Dutch uh, writer and speaker, and he, he feels that the companies that will succeed in the future are the ones where the clients and the customers uh, believe that they have a shared value system with the companies. So, so like you say, you're not just buying things that you need, but you're buying things for a wider range of reasons. Uh, do you think that's a, a plausible hypothesis of how things are evolving? Yeah, and I think Stephen von Bellingham, he is, of course, he has the perspective of the customer, which is very important as well, because the customer is it's one of the stakeholders. Huh? And I think and what's, what COVID might learn us is that you have more and more stakeholders. And again, I think we are all children of Plato. We think in dualism, good and bad, man and woman. We should stop thinking like that. There's not such a thing as, on the one hand, you have the shareholders. On the other hand, you have the stakeholders. Because to give an example, if a company does something bad for the environment today, well, this company, of course, will have negative figures. If a company is using uh, children work outside, it might be very good for the, for the exploitation, for the costs and benefits for the profit and loss account, but it's bad for the value of the company. So we should stop thinking the one or the other. And it can be even positive. Eh? If you do something positive for the environment or for sustainability, that's what you want. And there was on there was a, a recently a, a study of the British think tank who said, if you go to youngsters, and I see it with my students as well, they have asked my students, where do you want to go to work? They say, we want to work for a company that does mean something for society. They don't say, I want to go to the company who pays me best. And this change we have to take into account. So so that's interesting. I mean, and, and definitely um, there has been uh, a feeling or a sense that the, the the new workforce, the new the new age group coming into the workforce, have a different set of criteria to assess who they want to work for. And so your think tank that you just quoted there would seem to validate that one. Um, and I mean, obviously, so 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 you lecture and you mentor many people coming through. And would you be seeing that with with your students as well? Yes, with my students as well. I did what you call today the, the generation Z generation. They they. They see work as, as one of the means to live. Eh? It's not the opposite. We don't live to work. Eh? Work is one of the means which allows us once to go six months abroad, which allows us to do something for society, which allows us to produce goods and goods and services that might be good for the quality of everybody. And, and I have huge ethical discussions with my students. They mm -hmm. don't understand that you make drugs, for instance, and that you will will say, let's limit it because it was a lot of money spent for innovation. So for the next of 10 years, we give a monopoly to that company. They don't understand and they are right. And that, that's what I find so interesting to combine philosophy and economy because economy should be something for the people, not for itself, like money. Money should not be something which has a value on itself. It should be something that facilitates us to exchange. This was the origin. And sometimes we forget that. Yeah, look, I mean, and and, and often um, uh, many people would feel that uh, having money is one thing, but but spending money is a far more healthy thing to do with it than than just gather it for the sake of it. Um, you've touched on this. Um, how how has this year been for you in terms of your working practices and 
uh, how has it changed the way you work? Obviously, now that we're doing so much more virtually, um, how's it been for you? Well, it changed. Of course, it changed. I must say myself, I was I was in a former life. I was director general for one laptop per child. Some of the listeners might know it is the one hundred dollar laptop. Oh so yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was director general of that for, for Europe and then Africa. And so we, we set something like more than four million laptops in the, in the, in forty five countries. So. We are very advanced in this open source policy and this online. So I think people like me, we, we are used to do that. We, we, we don't, I don't understand why, for instance, European Parliament, European Economic Social Committee, they come together once a month, taking planes from everywhere just to say yes or no, or uh, we don't agree. So we should rethink. And I hope that, that COVID makes you think things. And I see it with the professor as well. Uh, online examinations was not done. Now everybody does it. Online courses, it's, it's part of the game, you know. And even when COVID is over, I still think that we'll find the combination. We don't have to come together and an order to be packed together with 800 people in one room listening to a professor who thinks that he has the, the truth in, in, in his mind. No, we should, we should think about online interactive things. And I think it will be, really be a shock for myself uh, with the European Commission. Everything we do now, it's online. Every meeting is online. We try to negotiate online. Teaching is online. I think it's a good movement. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I definitely felt myself that uh, I could survive large amounts of the lockdown as long as I still had connectivity. And like you say, uh, it meant that we could still do a lot, a lot of the things that we would do normally. It just stripped out the flights and the travel and the meetings. But, but like you say, it doesn't mean that you can't still discuss and evolve policies and do things. So. I guess, yes, it does seem like it could be a nudge towards um, a more digital portion of our lives, you know, um, hopefully. So um, you, you recently did a, a, a TEDx about the, the nonsense of economy. Um, so, so obviously, for, does that mean we can move to a more sustainable operating system? What, what aspects of the nonsense of economy were, were you exploring and discussing? Well, in fact, what I was, what I was discussing in the TEDx uh, meeting was, in fact, we are consuming to consume. Uh, and, I, and I gave an example of, we are buying goods that we never use. We buy clothes yeah. that we never use. But <laughs> this was not the sense of the economy. The sense of the economy was to allow everybody to have decent goods and services. And now we are the, the affluent society, as, as Galbraith called it in the time. Yeah, We are there. We are there now. So my point was, let's rethink. Eh? First, we go to a job. Eh? A lot of us, don't like the job, eh? like the unfortunately the guy who, who died a couple of months ago, the bullshit jobs author. We have bullshit jobs. We see that we have burnout people. I see even at university a lot of burnout people. We see that the most burnouts are in the countries that are the richest. So you work hard, you do a job that you don't like, and then you spend the money for things that you don't need. Yeah. COVID should allow us to rethink the system and say, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of work? And so we are back to, to the philosophical question of economy. And, and, and I think, like obviously it's early, but I think a lot of people are already now pushing in terms of their job description to, to maintain and include a degree of remote and distance working. Because, you know, uh, I, I've always felt that if you are productive and timely in what you do, then the amount of time your bum spends on a seat in a particular building should be less of a criteria for assessing how good your workers are. Um, so, uh, 
it does seem that that there is going to be more pushback now from people in terms of well well we don't have to return to how we used to do things uh because because we don't need to um but i think this is part Simon, if, if i may if you allow me this is part of, of we should stop by thinking in input terms eh? we have still this uh, labor regulation you have to work 37 or 40 hours a week the whole discussion about will it be 38 36 or 37 this is no sense. Eh? We should stop by thinking in input. We should only th think in terms of output. And if you think in terms of output, then you don't need the clock to come in in the morning. Yeah. Uh, when I was Secretary General, I, I abolished the clock. The trade unions were against me. Now it, it took time, so months of discussion to take it out and to say, guys, what are you doing? Not when you are at the office. And I think we have still a long way to go. It's, it's still a long way to Tipperary. Yes. <laughs> Look, I, I agree um, because we had Ericsson in Ireland and there, there was a core of middle management and maybe one in eight of the staff were, were middle management. And the thing is, is that uh, that became their raison d'etre like, to assess the number of hours spent in the building. But, but really, was that productivity affecting productivity? Not necessarily. And, and so, like you say, it's, it's, it's maybe a headset rather than a necessity. So, uh, I, I think I think I think now gives a time to reflect and reassess. Just because we did things because we did them that way, it doesn't mean we should continue to do them. Um, I just want to explore with you because because I remember the one child one laptop project. Uh, hearing about it a long time ago, so it's great to have you on. So 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 now that that has happened, um, th th there was the, the idea in some ways was was that if you give, you know, the whole rather than rather than just give someone a fishing you know rather than some give someone a fish you teach them to f give them the, you, a fishing rod you teach them to fish so so what have there been interesting results and consequences from putting all those laptops out into uh children's hands like how, how did it play out and, and and now with the distance of time like what's your assessment of the project well, well the assessment was in fact that we were very early in the market because at that moment i remember we had the target to say 100 dollar for a laptop we never got there. It was $200, to be very honest. But at that moment, a laptop costed thousand dollars So yeah. we, we really disrupted the market. Now we can find, indeed, laptops, basic laptops for, for, for $500 Euro or for $500. So we, we changed the market. Secondly, if you look to, to, to the children in, in Africa or in South America, there was a big problem of internet. Well, with our, with our laptops, we had this alternative, what you call the machine system, the alternative system where every child has on his laptop 10 to 100 books, but they could combine with the laptop of the children in the same class. So they were all like a walking library. And this library, in fact, they got energy because they got the solar panel on their back when they went to school. So this was a really fantastic, fantastic element. And now you see that still parts of in the field of energy, in the field of internet, in the field of the prices. You see that it really worked, it really happened. And we spoke about open source. At the moment, nobody was open source. It was licensed. So I think we really were quite innovative at that moment. And, and we, we, did, we had some impact. Um, I think now it's difficult to make it sustainable because the market has now completely changed. But I think it was really a project that I really believe to do it. You know, myself, I have been for... 14 years uh, chief of staff, so uh, I earned enough money, I had enough money, so I like to work uh, three years for this uh, non-governmental organization and manage the OPC from the beginning, which was an idea of Nicolas Negroponte, and I find really it was a very nice project, so I'm very happy that I was a, a high-level contributor to that project. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think in some ways, like you say, it's a fantastic example. And therefore, you know, the next time someone wants to do something that's considered slightly crazy, you have the precedence to say, well, look, that was done, that worked. And then, I mean, you had Raspberry Pi and things that, you know, really brought down the price of giving a very basic form of computing, you know, like a modern day version of the ZX81. So I think those projects work and, and, and often it doesn't need to be specifically the one that reaches global domination but it shows the possibilities of what can be done so yeah, yeah it, I triggers, it triggers some effects in the market and now you have this uh, this uh, this uh, close the gap uh, initiatives i think it's very good and and today you know the, the best way of developing people is to give them a computer and access to internet because anywhere in the world you have access to the world and that makes a difference yeah, it really does. I mean, and you know, the, the, the massive developments in Africa. I, I was in Namibia in the late 90s and, you know, everyone was on mobile, far more people on mobile than back in Ireland at the time. And yeah. so, you know, they, they just leapfrogged a whole stage and, and, and went from there. And then M-Pesa and all the exciting things that followed, you know, were, were creative solutions to work around. We don't have a landline and, you know, we have we don't have banks where we are. So uh, I, definitely. Um, I have another question on a different tack, but 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 you know, obviously, you, you have quite an interesting provenance in that you know, in Belgium, you know, you served in both the Walloon and the Flemish sides of of government, and so you know, there are many areas around the world that, that, where things seem other people's differences seem very important, uh, and then maybe they're not actually from from an outside perspective. So, I guess, what can we learn from your experience, and and how can it help in other parts of the world? Well, I think the first thing we can learn is that uh, that you have to to manage things in peace. It doesn't make sense to to be violent. So that's the first thing to do. The second one, I think, is and, and that's, that's something we learned by experience. We we've done we didn't didn't do it very well. It's keep it simple. You know, we have too much structures, too much layers, and and we have always the question: who is competent for what? And so I think what we should do, and this is still a very big task for for a country like Belgium is to really, really say what at what level is something the most efficient. I'm, I'm a big fan of what you call subsidiarity. Subsidiarity means let's do it at the lowest level possible on the condition that this is still efficient. And therefore, I believe in a country like, like, like Belgium, you can apply the subsidiarity for the regions, Flanders, Wallonie and Brussels, for the federal level and relations towards Europe. And if you try to then to make it efficient, this is the best way for the taxpayer. So what, what you have to do now, I think, is to on what you have as a basis to make a lean and mean and very simple structure where you always say, what is the most efficient thing to do? And what we should try to avoid are dogmas, huh? because this is always a problem when you have two or three regions. Well, then you have, of course, two or three media, and the media don't speak with, with each other, and mm -hmm. that's something you should work. And so I think I'm a big fan of what you call inter-regional relationships, inter-regional media, because if people don't know each other, if you have, I always say if you have kids and you say you have three kids, you are the blues and the other kids, you are the red ones. After one day, they are fighting each other, although red and blue doesn't mean anything. That's life. Yeah, look, I mean, I would agree that you have that at a country level and then you have that at a, at a regional level. And then, and then you know, we'd be in Nicaragua and they'd say, oh, the, the people in the next village, they're bad people. <laughs> and then yeah. you get to that, you know. So uh, I think it's this, you know, maybe the lizard part of our brain that, you know, is, is wary and distrustful of those that we feel are not like us. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, like if you look at, you know, Belgium, the UK, uh, most European countries, we have such a wide range of, uh, you know, 
nationalities and different cultures within our places that you know we learn far more from embracing that than we do from just rejecting it yeah and and again i think a crisis like the covid might might help us because we, we are now we don't have the face to face anymore you're in front of a screen and who's behind the screen the voice behind the screen doesn't change anymore it is this voices from from a certain region from a certain language from a certain culture what does it change you know yeah look i'd agree and um also i think maybe the fact that that it's affecting the whole world is also therefore interesting because maybe previously you might have seen hiv or ebola as something that was regionally specific whereas th this is something that you need to have good policies in place and you need to think about everywhere because you know otherwise if if if, if you have zero cases in ireland but people for everywhere else in the world have it then ireland's going to have it again so it, yeah. it does make people have to look more outward so it could be interesting um i guess from this um uh Another area that that you have interest and opinion in is is that we were going to discuss uh, about e EU startups and evolving ideas and uh, the, the challenges of raising funds. So so in in a, in a lurch of directions, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I would say there are two thoughts. My first thought is that that we still think that growth depends on capital and labor. I said that's no longer true. Huh? Growth depends on the intangibles. Intangibles mean innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity. So for me, the, the first thing that Europe should work on is not money, it's mindset, it's entrepreneurship. And, and then we have a long way to go because if, if I can quote a philosopher like Platon, he said, if you, if you do business, you, you should go to jail one year in case of risk, risk division, you have two years. Eh? So that's normal that entrepreneurship is still in another lot of regions. I think Ireland is, is a very good very good uh, example of how it should do and entrepreneurship is very well developed although we have still some potential in some regions and and for instance gender issue but entrepreneurship is one of the important things and if you have the mindset then the other thing follows if you have the mindset then of course we should make that the money is there but again going back to your startup the money is there the problem is the transmission to companies eh? there's there's a lot of money on the markets now interest is negative and if you see that a lot of startups don't find the money, and if you see, for instance, in Europe, we have 11 times less startup money than in the United States. Mm -hmm. But there is even a bigger problem. It's a problem of scale-up. It's companies at a certain moment, they do well, and they want to expand, they want to internationalize, and they're looking for 10 to 15 million. Well, today, and this is a shocking figure, Simon, today, 45% of the European companies leaves Europe to find the money abroad. And if you find the money abroad, you stay there. Yeah. So this is what we call the scale-up gap. And the scale-up gap means we should invest to have bigger funds, funds allowing to make tickets of 10 to 50 million, because it doesn't make sense to invest in startups, when at the third moment, the startups, the, the nice ones, those who grow, those who scale up, those you lose. This is not a good investment. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. and. <laughs> Oh, and I know, um, oh, with I think it was Prezi, you know, that then they went to California to find their funding, you know. So, you know, that's originally Hungarian, interesting company, good people. And, and like you say, they've had to cross the water to raise the funds, which does seem a, a loss because then if their offices are based over there and then they file tax and pay tax there, if they pay tax anywhere, then, yeah, that's that, that that's all a loss to the European EU environment. Yeah. Um, now, you also mentioned gender. So I know you also mentor female, female founders in particular. So uh, are there any particular tips 
that 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 you that you give for for people for, for women looking to do it are there things they need to do differently or what kind of mentoring do you give to them well the, the first thing if, if you look to the figures again it's the figures are shocking huh? if i take in volume not the number of deals in volume if you look all the venture capital in europe 1.5 percent goes to women-led companies 1.5 percent if i look to business angels three percent goes to women-led companies and, and as I showed in my, in my recent book on, on entrepreneurship, I made an analysis and I looked, in fact, to the return. And if you look to the return, then you see, in fact, that investing in women-led business is 2.5 times better than in men businesses, if you took general. So my first message would be to the investors, you are missing the target because you are investing in companies that do not give the return that you want and the target are the women. So the second one I would say to, to women startups, first of all, go for it. And I would say use my book and show the figures to the investors and perhaps they may change their minds. Yeah, look, I, I would agree with you because otherwise you have that kind of pro bro culture of a, a white male affirmation of a certain age and, and therefore you're missing out on insights and perspectives. You know, that uh, I mean, you mentioned gender, but the other one is diversity too, that they yeah. find that co companies with a, a more diverse collection of founders often perform better be because they're thinking about things in a different way. They have, you know, m most companies are formed from an idea, from a problem that you've personally experienced. So therefore, you know, if you're only pulling from a very narrow range of people, then you're missing those possible insights. So it's it's almost a no brainer, but at the same time, it's it, it's a mistake that people are still making. So oh, I think you're right. I always say to my students, you, you take 15 engineers between 50 and 60 years old, they all have their time. You put them in the castle and say you have to innovate, but they will come out, they'll all die because they're not innovate. You need diversity. Innovation is diversity. It's men, women, it's people from different cultures. That's in a, that's and if you look to entrepreneurship, Silicon Valley, a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are not Americans. We should always yeah. that. Huh? So we should think this is what we should do. And this kind of ecosystem, that is what we have to build in Europe. Yeah, look, I agree. Um and 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 I, I I guess one thing is, is at some of the uh, this is pre pre COVID, but a lot of the uh, startup accelerators, even in like Latvia and Estonia, uh, many of the founders were not from there. And similarly, you know, we have some good companies in Ireland where one of the founders is Iranian. So I think sometimes some people do get it that there is value if you bring in people who are not like what you have already uh, you can only win by that um so look um in this context what trends are you excited about going forwards based upon your teaching and the people you work with like like where where, where do you think we could see innovation happening soon and in positive ways well well i think there's a lot of opportunities i refer to, to the postcard you make with uh, with uh, my colleague from uh, space from galileo i, I uh -huh. believe that space, and sometimes we, we in Europe, we are, we are too modest. Right? We are not like Americans. Um, we have the biggest earth observation capacity in the world with Copernicus. The biggest in the world. This means that millions and millions of data we get every day. So then we can use them. So if you look to, to companies, there's a huge potential of startups, of scale-ups in the field of space, not in space, but space applications in space. That's one of the things which I really see that's going to grow in the next years. A second example where I personally
combination of PropTech. Eh? PropTech means property and technology. Eh? It means smart buildings. So you're going to combine real estate with artificial intelligence, with blockchain, with virtual reality, with Internet of Things that you combine. Eh? That's what you call smart buildings. And now today in Europe, we have 3,000 startups in the field of PropTech. And we estimated that before 2025, there'll be 185 billion euro that's going to be invested in that sector. And wow. for the moment, it's enormously. For the moment, we don't have the scale-ups yet. So they're all in the starting phase. And it's my view that PropTech will be the FinTech in three years' time. So that's something to look at. And I think for somebody who owns real invest, who is in the business of real estate, the question is not, shall I do PropTech? But the question is, when? Shall I do it now? Or shall I be a follower and be obliged in five years' time? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and in Cork, we, they have some smart buildings. And generally, anytime you put the AI and the machine learning to it, you can make energy savings. You could be generating your own energy. Uh, it does seem like a no-brainer. And even I was reading like Walmart and, you know, some of the things they've done now save them millions and billions in terms of energy efficiency. So, so, so they hadn't necessarily set out to be particularly environmental, but 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 they realize the value of paying far less money if you generate your own energy and use things more effectively. So and I, I think the second thing, Simon, is, is in fact that we should rethink the value of business. Eh? Now we mm -hmm. say, what is the value of real estate? Well, it should be a Grafton Street in Dublin or Chelsea, Paris. This, this is over. Eh? Because what do we want now? We want a storage house, easy to access, easy to access, which in fact has a lot of capacity, which is smart, and that will be the value for the future. So it's no longer, as we said before, location, location, location. It will be now accessibility and how smart is the building and how easy access it has. So that's the whole rethinking of real estate. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, ideally, the sooner it happens, then the other people then jump on board. It was like in Turkey, once a few people were using solar panels to heat the water in hostels, then suddenly everybody was doing it because why would you pay to do it the other way? So I think it's exciting. Um, who, 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 who do you get your inspiration from, and 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 where where do you stay up to date with information and trends? Like, what are your go-to sources of inspiration and information? Well, uh, first of all, I have some I have some people which I, I like their thinking. I, I, perhaps I made I made you that, for instance, somebody like Che Guevara. I like the guy, not his objectives, but he says it was impossible, but nobody told me so. <laughs> I believe everything is impossible. And secondly, you know, I'm, I'm, I present a lot of conference and I, got, I go to, to the people, not to the organizations of enterprise, but to the real entrepreneurs, so those, those who are struggling. Eh? My book is called Entrepreneurship, No Guts, No Glory. You see the people, they're struggling and every day they have to take decisions. And if you speak with them, then you see real people looking for opportunities. You, you interviewed Maddie, but Maddie, mm. at the moment she's, she's every corner of the street says, is there an opportunity to do business? And it's nice to see those people having this, this mentality. You know, if you speak about entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm a professor, but I never use the academic definition. I always use the definition of Machiavelli. Machiavelli said an entrepreneur is the one who sees the difference between an obstacle and an opportunity and tries to turn both into his advantage. That's an entrepreneur. And seeing those people, and it's not only about enterprises. Eh? If I speak about entrepreneurship, it's entrepreneurship in financial institutions. It's entrepreneurship in the university. So it's rather a mindset that entrepreneur is much broader. And I think this is really missing. And if I can speak back as an economist, I made some correlations in my book that the link between 
entrepreneurship and economic growth. So if they did entrepreneurship of year one, and I try to correlate with the economic growth of year N plus one, I have a correlation of 52%. This means the main determinant of growth is entrepreneurship. Yes, I think so. Um, and and it's both super important and, and, and I guess the other challenge is that many established companies then ossify and find it hard to remain innovative and so that's why you look at nokia and kodak and you know uh, how do you remain open to change um so you're right and i guess while what you say is true uh, the challenge is, is is to ensure that companies don't get stuck down into their structures and you know the things that prevent them from remaining innovative um i guess what are your final thoughts on that well, you give a nice example of Nokia. Nokia, you know, they were so innovative. Every week there was a new Nokia phone on, on the market. Eh? Everybody was using Nokia. Now today, Nokia have, of course, did the completely turn out, but they missed the boat of the cell phones. Why? With one simple question. Why do we use a cell phone? And the answer was not to make phone calls. This was the only mistake that Nokia made. So it's about disruptive thinking because it was a smartphone. And then came BlackBerry. But BlackBerry, unfortunately, was not client-friendly. Mm. So, so came Apple and Samsung who took the market. You see, this is a nice example of intrapreneurship, of innovation. And I really believe that the future of Europe, the future of the world is innovation, creativity, and, and, and entrepreneurship. And creativity, Francis, and I think in Ireland you have done some, some very good things at primary schools because children are creative. The only thing we ask to education is that they don't kill that creativity because creativity is entrepreneurship. Yes, definitely. And I think that's also nice, exciting and positive because, you know, they're the next generation coming through. And, and as we're already seeing with the, the generations, I think, was it Zed that we discussed that already people who are leaving college are, are asking for a different set of criteria for who they work for. So the, the, the children following that are also creative and imaginative is always positive um look it's been really good to talk to you um if people want to learn more about you or follow what you do what are the best ways for people to to learn more about you i would suggest you to if you like entrepreneurship you can read the book entrepreneurship no guts no glory which was published with the uh, intercentia cambridge or if you prefer finance i have a book on corporate finance as well and i have some nice books on philosophy the value of of economy the value of work why do we work so you can't find everything on there. Uh, so I wish you good lecture. And if you have reactions, always welcome. Awesome. And uh, we'll include all the links in the article and then also maybe your recent TEDx as well. So look, uh, thanks very much for talking to us. It's been really useful and interesting to hear your ideas. Very nice to talk to you, Simon. Very nice. And a very nice initiative. I really like what you're doing. We hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks and keep listening.